Father, come now and work powerfully in us by your Spirit. Cause us to see and to enter your kingdom. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me begin our time together today by reading to you an epitaph, which is on a gravestone in St. Mary's Church in Everton, Bedfordshire, which is not too far west of Cambridge. The vicar there, and vicar is a word for pastor, his name was John Berridge, and he died. The famous Charles Simeon, if you're familiar with older preachers, he came and even did his funeral in the churchyard. But this is what is written on John Berridge's gravestone, and if you ever have a chance, you can still read it there today. Here lie the earthly remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. I was born in sin February 1716. Remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation until 1754. Was admitted to Everton Vicarage, meaning he became the pastor, in 1755. Fled to Christ alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Jesus, January 22nd. 1793. Our study today is about the new birth. And the most important thing to understand about this passage, if you've got a handout, it'll be written across the top, is the main theme, which is that the new birth is a miracle of grace. The new birth is a miracle of grace. And the question that I begin this with is the question I'm going to ultimately end this with because throughout this passage, the pulsating question that should be burning in your heart is, reader, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. And this week, I'm going to beg your indulgence. I know I'm normally a long-winded pastor uh, to a certain extent. But this week, I want to try and give us some context for this passage, and so we're going to do a lot of hard work today. So I ask that you give me your ears and your focus and your attention, and I think we're going to get some riches for the sake of the work that we put into it. <clears throat> Before we really dig into this particular passage, we need to do some introduction and context. See, this expression, being born again, this idea, being having a new birth or born from above, being a born-again Christian, the definition of these terms has expanded even within my own short life. I grew up, as many of you know, in Connecticut, and at some point, the Hartford downtown was given a makeover, and the newspapers called it a new birth. Again, in my own lifetime, people who make a dramatic change in social alliances or moral behavior are said to have experienced a new birth. Several of the people that I went to college with and even seminary with have since become atheists and call themselves born-again atheists. 
In the surrounding culture, ideas abound as to what it means to be a born-again Christian. Some people, when they say that, they mean that a born-again Christian is someone who is a knee-jerk conservative. Or sometimes it means someone like a former addict who needs strong moral guidelines. Sometimes it means someone who resonates with an emotional or ecstatic form of community worship. Even inside of the household of Christianity, the term has multiple meanings. For some Christians, it could mean that you're simply saying you embrace conservative theology. I'm a born-again Christian. Some feel as though you have made this faith your own, meaning I grew up under in a Christian household, but now I've become Christian for real, as it were. And for others, it refers to a second or an emotionally intense spiritual experience, a filling of the Holy Spirit that uh, means that you've experienced the Spirit in a way that others perhaps have not. So clearly, our ideas of what it means to be born again are simply not all the same. And I don't know where you've come from or what your context is. I believe that such confusion, though, arises for a few different reasons. The first is that whether we know it or not, we need to be born again. And so we're trying to figure out this term and we're trying to apply this term to things because deep down, underneath everything, we know we need a new birth. Secondly, our ideas of what a new birth is end up having mostly to do with our own view of ourselves. And so oftentimes, what we mean by born again has more to do with what we think it would be to be born again than anything else. Or thirdly, and this is perhaps why that happens, is that we have broadly lost sight of what the Bible says about the new birth. We've grown up in a culture, or we've grown up in a household, or we've grown up even in a church that gives us a definition of what the new birth is, but we have not looked in Scripture. In fact, I think this is why John Berridge engraved his gravestone for everyone to see. Reader, art thou born again? He wrote this because first, he grasped the absolute importance of the question. Because second, after a lifetime of religious righteousness, he says, lived on faith and works for salvation for a long time, after a life of religious righteousness, he discovered the treasury of hope and joy that was promised in the biblical idea of a new birth. And I don't think he's exceptional. I think all of us are inclined, very much like the character that we meet in this story, Nicodemus, because of our sinful nature, to want to erase, avoid, distort, or miss the idea altogether. We distort it so that we fit into it. We ignore it because it's uncomfortable. We try and suppress it because it's really uncomfortable sometimes. So instead, what must we do? As Christians, we must, one, recover the biblical definition of a new birth. We need to know what the Bible says about what it means to be born again because this is the single most important issue of your life. Secondly, we then have to explain Jesus' teachings by unraveling his chosen imagery. In this passage, Jesus uses three metaphors or three images to explain what it is and what it means to be born again. And then thirdly, we have to apply it, and the most basic way to apply it is by asking ourselves the question, reader, art thou born again? 
So John chapter 3 expands on some realities that we introduced last week in chapter 2. So if you're just joining us, we're working through the Gospel of John. That's why we're in this section now. We looked at chapter 2 last week. Now we're into chapter 3. And last week we saw how the Old Testament revealed a Messiah who would not merely restore the Jewish temple, but rather that he would fulfill the idea of Jewish temple. He would render its sacrifices, its priests, and its cleansing all obsolete. How would he do that? He would do it by suffering and dying and rising from the dead. We said then, as a consequence, that the temple was not an end goal. God's gift of the temple to his people was not an end in and of itself. Instead, it was a symbol. It was pointing to our need for a great sacrifice that would affect perfect and lasting cleansing. Someone who could reconcile us to God by giving us new life. And it is those two ideas, lasting cleansing and new life, with which we must concern ourselves today. That's why John put that story right before this one. It's so that we are thinking in terms of, I need a great sacrifice because I need to be permanently and enduringly cleansed by something that's greater than the temple itself. And to set the stage for what he now brings out for Nicodemus, we need to do a little bit of homework that he is assuming that we've done. Jesus assumes that Nicodemus is familiar with two very long passages in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36 and Ezekiel chapter 37. And so as we hear them, I want you to listen for two ideas, these two chief ideas. One is cleansing. Listen for themes of cleansing. And secondly, listen for the idea of a miraculous work of new life. Listen for cleansing, listen for new life. We're going to start, if you want to follow me in your Bibles, I'm going to Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'm looking specifically at verses 25 through 27. You'll see them up here. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is one of the most famous passages in Ezekiel. It's the promise of the new covenant. It's the promise of God doing something so amazing in the people of Israel that they're going to look nothing like what they ever did before. This passage is prelude then to chapter 37 when Ezekiel, who is famous for all of his cool visions, right? He gets all the cool visions. He gets another one. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the Lord gives him a vision that explicates or expands on what we just heard. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. Behold, it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he, that is God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. As the narrative goes on, he sees that they are enfleshed and the bodies are raised, but he perceives that they have no spirit. And so then he, that is God, said to me, prophesy to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them. And they lived. And they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole of the house of Israel. Behold, they say to me, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Amen. Whoa. (laughs) So the two big promises that you walk away from in those two passages, right? First... He's going to wash his people with water and the spirit and that that washing is going to change their heart. Two, that change is going to be so dramatic. It is going to be as though a dead man, no, a dead army that were just dry bones on the valley would be reanimated and not just reanimated like zombies, no, like real People living with the Spirit in them. That's the picture that we see in the Old Testament. So we need to note three things before we return to John. One, when God promises to restore Israel, he promises to cleanse them with water and a new spirit by transplanting their heart and making it new. Two, that spiritual life is God's exclusive and miraculous work. He will cause them he says, to live in righteousness. Thirdly, this work of new life is as radical as literally raising the dead. So today, I ordinarily do these sort of big points that we work through the passage with, and today I'm just going to do a series of questions, and we're going to work through them asking and answering these questions. And the it in all of these questions is the new birth. So who is it, the new birth, for? And we'll march on from there. So the first question is, who is it for? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The first thing that we know is that Nicodemus, or sorry, before I get ahead of myself, who is it for? The answer to this question, who is it for, is everyone, even the most religious. The answer to the question of who needs the new birth is everyone, even the most religious. Where do we get that? Well, in verse 1, we see Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was an exceptional Pharisee. He was sitting on the ruling council for the Jews. He was on the Sanhedrin. This was a man of social authority, of political influence. And the reason he was that is because he was an exceptional example of being a Pharisee. This man is a quintessential Pharisee. He was a morally religious political conservative who sat on the Jewish ruling council. He enjoyed social and religious honor and authority, and he comes as a happy representative of that council. He comes saying, we know. He doesn't distinguish himself from that council. He comes, he's like, I'm from them. We know that you are from God, at least in a sense. The next thing that we know is that he believed that his participation in God's kingdom was a given. That by virtue of his birth, and perhaps more importantly, by his life as a law-abiding man, he was virtually guaranteed access to and ultimately vindication in the kingdom of God. We catch this right out of the way Jesus responds to his first statement. Jesus' response is not, Thank you. It's so nice to have someone recognize your work. Right? He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And if we were reading carefully in chapter 2, we'd remember Jesus' diagnosis of the heart of men. Jesus did not entrust himself to men. Why? Because he knew what was in man. So when a man, in the immediate next verses, walks up and says, I know you're from God... Jesus does not just go, oh, yes, of course you do. You actually do. No. And he doesn't affirm his his assertion. Instead, he responds in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hello to you too. (laughs) So Nicodemus believed that his participation in the kingdom of God was assumed. It was a given. Of course he was. He didn't think he was there to talk about that. In one, one uh, preacher that I heard said, Nicodemus came to Jesus asking to do a redo of his kitchen, and Jesus suggested that really what he needed to do was light a stick of dynamite in his kitchen. Like, he comes being like, can we change the countertops? And Jesus is like, no, we need to change the whole house. So what's the implication? If even Nicodemus needed to be born again, then everyone even the most religious among us, needs to be born again. From the outset, we have a picture of a man who does the right things, knows the right stuff, has memorized more of the Bible than I'm going to guess most of us have. He was a Pharisee, which means odds are he memorized the Old Testament. He knew it. Backwards and forwards. So what else does it mean? It means that Nicodemus needed to repent 
but of what? More than his sin. He needed to repent of something more than his sin. Was he a sinner? Yes, Pharisees would have agreed on that. He needed to repent of his confidence in his religious righteousness. He needed to repent of believing that he, by virtue of who he was and what he did, was already in the kingdom, which tells us something else. It tells us that more vigorous piety is not being born again. More vigorous piety is not the same thing as regeneration. And sometimes we get that impression, like, oh, you're a born-again Christian? Oh, that means you've upped the ante. You are doing more things that God likes. Like, there's some people, they understand the five things that God likes. You, you have figured out the 12 things that God likes, and you do them. No, more vigorous piety is not regeneration. And Jesus is not calling on Nicodemus to think, like, yes, Nicodemus, you're doing great. Being a Pharisee is good. The Essenes are better, and I've got another level past that. No. He's breaking him down. He's not building him up. So, friend, whether you look down your nose on people because they are not yet bored again, or whether you look down your nose on people because they think they need it, you are in danger. So what do I mean by that? Whether you look down your nose on people because they are not yet born again means that you think, in some sense, that your status as being, whatever you've called being born again, gives you a privilege of elitism to look down on somebody else. Friend, that's not the result of the new birth. Or whether you look down on other people who think that they need some kind of radical internal transformation to become pleasing before God, you're in danger. If you're sitting on the outside looking in going, you think God needs to do some sort of miraculous change to you to make you acceptable? No! God likes you just as you are. In both cases, you have misunderstood what it means to be born again, and you're in danger. So, one, who is it for? It's for everyone, even the most religious. Two, what is it? What is it? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It is God's saving work causing the heart to come alive to repentance and faithful obedience. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we have to understand the first metaphor. This is the first metaphor that Jesus sets up, and he's going to do three. The first one is being born. Uh, you could translate this as being born from above or being born again. Both are fine. The point is, Jesus is using the illustration of birth. So what can we know about birth? Well, one, birth is radical. It involves the whole person. It's not just a bit of the baby that gets born. The baby gets born, right? It is a radical transformation. It is an immersive transfer from one kingdom, the womb, to another, the world. It is often painful. It is often messy. 
And with the exception of the last 60 to 80 years of human history in modern industrialized countries, it almost, with what kind of proportion, would have led to the death of the mother. It was a foundational assumption that having a child was risky. A beautiful thing, a wonderful thing, a necessary thing, but oftentimes deadly. Other things we can gather from it. It is not a result of the baby's work. The baby does not give birth to the baby. I was there when I watched both of ours. I know who gave birth to who. <laughs> it is not a result of the baby's work. Instead, it is the mother's labor of love, right? In great pain, often for most of history, with possible loss of life. John 16, 21, Jesus uses this metaphor again when he speaks of himself. And he says, she is in pain for her hour has come. But then she forgets because a child is born. He talks about the moment of salvation as this arduous labor of love with great pain, great suffering, even loss of life in order to bring about a new creation. What else do we know about the birth? Well, there are perceptible signs of life. Right? One of my friends in Colorado, his firstborn child, he was dreadfully frightened. And if you've ever had a, a terrible experience in childbirth, this, hopefully this doesn't bring it back for you, but um, his firstborn child came out of the womb and for a good eight seconds was just cold and blue and wasn't moving, and he was so frightened. But of course, then the doctor you know, smacks the baby and baby cries and springs to life, and you're so happy when you hear that cry, and when you see the movement. Uh, David, when he was born, he just, he was moving fit to burst. There are perceptible signs of life. It's obvious when a baby has been born into the world, right? Everything that was formerly, and it's obvious also for the baby, because everything that was formerly dim and distant, they could just see shapes moving through the wall of the womb, they can just hear, they can hear sounds, but it's like you're under the bathtub, you know, it's, it's a different kind of sound. But now it becomes clear. Sounds and lights suddenly that were formerly vague and distant, they become clear and they become ever increasingly real. It is a tremendous shock. So friends, that Jesus is comparing the miracle of new birth to birth tells us that it is a work of someone else, not us, it's a radical transfer from one kingdom to another, and there are perceptible signs of life. When it happens, you know. Verse 5, then, I need to mention that it is not, I, I think the ESV unfortunately translates this poorly, it is not two things, of water and the spirit. Rather, it should be translated of water and spirit. There's no definite article in the Greek text. Water and spirit, and the reason I think that is because that points back to Ezekiel 36. That is specifically what Jesus is referencing here. In Ezekiel 36, we heard, I'm going to cleanse you by the washing of water and spirit. And the combination of those two things coming together points to one great work of radical renewal. So it's not two individual things. It's one idea. It's not two baptisms, a baptism of water, and then subsequently a baptism of the spirit, but rather 
When you are baptized by God, when you are given new birth, that is one radical, amazing event that takes place in your heart. And we've already discussed this. We said John's baptism of water was, was not like part one, and then Jesus' baptism of fire was part two. It was, there is one baptism. You are either in Christ or not. It is the one necessary work to become a full member of the body of Christ. Romans 8, 9, Paul says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. There is no way to have part of the spirit of Christ, but not all of it. You either are Christ's or you are not Christ's. If you are Christ's, you have his spirit. The evidence that this portrays or the evidence by which we know this new birth has taken place are repentance, faith, and obedience. We're not going to spoil the next rest of the chapter. We will get, you'll see those signs later on in the chapter. So the next question is, what does it do? So who is it for? Everyone. What is it? A miracle. What does it do? It enables us to perceive, receive, respond to, and obey God's grace. It enables us to perceive. That means to see. It enables us to receive. It's the action of accepting, believing, delighting in, and to obey God's grace. Look at verses 3, 5, and 14 through 15. We've read 3 and 5. 14 and 15 has, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the first two passages, we see that Jesus responds to him and says in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So without the new birth... The Bible says you can neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. That means that without the new birth, we are not just prone, but almost bound to calling things that are evil, good. We will call things that are good, evil. Our conscience, however helpful and however indicative it is that we have a creator, becomes suspect, even to the point that we could call it deceitful. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, describes the human heart as being sick, full of deceit. Who can understand it, he says. And that's our position apart from the new birth. Without it, it means that we fail to rightly respond to or perceive God's presence and work. Jesus talks about how God lets his sun shine on the just and the unjust and his rain to fall on the guilty and the righteous, that we walk every day in an ocean of God's grace, but to the heart that has not been born again, the sun is just something that rises and the rain is just something that comes. There's nothing more to it. It's not the beneficence of God. It's not his earnest, common desire to draw you to himself and show you his goodness. But to the one who's been born again, even the Son is a mark of God's grace. Or, even if we do perceive it, but we are not yet born again, we do not rightly esteem it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle says, For although they knew God, 
they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. That's an indication of someone who might say, I believe in God, of course I do. But the substance of your life does not give testimony to the fact that you know God. You don't love him, you don't glorify him as God, you don't respond to him as though he is the Lord and the maker of everything and you and as though all things are working together for the purposes of his glory. So without the new birth, you cannot see the kingdom of God and without the new birth, you cannot enter it. Verses three and five, that we cannot see or enter, not that we might not see, not that we may not see, we cannot see, we cannot enter, force us to take the metaphor of birth far more seriously, that apart from the new birth, we are, as the Bible says, dead in our sins. Jesus uses this language is not just the language of Paul, although some people have accused him of that. Jesus describes it in Luke 9, verse 60. He says to the man who wants to follow him, let the dead bury their own dead. He obviously doesn't mean let zombies bury the ones that are dead, right? He, he means let the spiritually dead, those who do not see and cannot enter the kingdom, let them worry about the dead. What's more important is that you come and you follow me. Paul picks up that language in Ephesians 2, right? We were once dead in our former trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, doing what the world does. We were, as Ezekiel 37 describes us, dry bones, lifeless on the floor of a valley. The new birth then is not for someone else. It's for you. Two, it's not another name for moral reform. I can talk with my Muslim friends, not at the moment, I don't have any at the moment, but I have in the past, <laughs> but I have spoken with my Muslim friends in the past about how there's no such thing as a sufficiently good Christian. But there is, for instance, if you know a Muslim, there is such a thing as being a sufficiently good Muslim. Mark Dever famously tells the story of his roommate who was Muslim over in England, and he was concerned about a mutual friend of theirs who was also supposedly Muslim. But he went and he, he would get drunk and he would do all these things that really weren't in line with his Muslim profession of faith. And so his roommate would say, I, I just want him to be a sufficiently good Muslim. I, I want him to start keeping what the Lord commands him to do. And Mark would say, friend, I'll, I'll pray for that, sure, but I want him to become far more than a sufficiently good Christian. There, there's no such thing as a sufficiently good Christian. You have to be remade from the inside. We don't please God by just coming slightly more in alignment with his commands for our life. We have to please God only and in and through Jesus Christ. So the new birth is not for somebody else, and the new birth is not a name for moral reform, although it does create it. Secondly, consequently, the new birth then is a foreign idea. It is radical and it is unflattering to the unconverted. The new birth is a foreign idea. It is radical and it is unflattering to the unconverted. Friend, if this idea that you in and of yourself cannot please God, that you, even if you try harder than you are now, cannot please God, that God is not looking for that, that is unflattering to you. I grant it. We see that in the elder brother, right? In the story of the prodigal son. The elder brother complains to the father saying, I did everything that you ever asked me and I stayed here and you never gave me a goat 
that I might celebrate with my friends. The grounds for his discontent are, I did the right thing. I deserve your favor. And that is precisely the reason why he's outside the feast. So friend, the idea of the new birth is unflattering to the unconverted. It is a radical idea. D.A. Carson puts it best, I think, in his commentary. He says, for a man like Nicodemus, entering the kingdom of God did not have to do with the transformation of an individual's character, but with participation in the resurrection of the new order that God would powerfully bring about at the end of history. He wasn't looking to be changed. He just wanted to have Jesus basically bless him and say, good job, man. You're doing good. Keep it up. Jesus was confronting Nicodemus with the total inadequacy of his religious righteousness to satisfy God's demands and his need to depend wholly and utterly on the grace of God for his salvation. Friend, here's a picture of real Christian love. Jesus confronting Nicodemus on his confidence in his religious righteousness is a good thing. That is a loving thing. That is the right thing. Unless you are willing to accept a new paradigm about your nature, a different picture of who you are, you are never going to be able to hear the Bible's message to you. A new paradigm is like when you shift from seeing the atom as like the concentric circles of energy with the different particles moving around them. And then when I got to college, they're like, actually, it's more like a cloud. <laughs> and, and all the particles are moving around, and it's, it's much more indistinct. And I was like, I can't get my head around this. You ha if you're going to do work in science, I realize, like, you got to accept the new paradigm. Friend, if you're going to understand what Scripture is going to tell you, you have to be willing to accept that its view of you and your view of you are not the same thing. Therefore, what does it do when we're answering this question? What does it do? So if without it you cannot see or enter it, if it's a radical idea and unflattering to the unconverted, what does the new birth do? Well, then it causes us to see and to enter the kingdom. If without it you don't see the kingdom and you don't enter it with it, what do you do? You see it. You see God's hand of grace and you enter the kingdom. It provokes a response. In verse 14, where we have that third metaphor, the people look at the bronze serpent. And so they're supposed to look at Christ. There's a response that comes as a result of being born again. So the new birth not only enables, but it actually creates those very convictions that we would otherwise reject. These things that we find so foreign and repugnant to us that say you have nothing that you can bring to the holy God of the universe to make him right with you. The new birth creates those beliefs. It creates the belief that we are sinners, helpless and empty-handed before God, under his wrath and in desperate need of his grace. And it causes us to see that Christ is good. It causes us to see Christ as good, as sufficient, as loving, as kind and full of grace. It moves us to run to the cross. So it gets played out in Pilgrim's Progress that when Pilgrim happens across the scroll that says, flee the wrath to come, what does he do? He doesn't just say, I intellectually agree. This is true. My city, the city of destruction, is going to be burnt with fire. He runs. <laughs> he grabs hold of evangelists and says, I want to flee. 
let me get out of here. The new birth produces a response. We live, we act, things are different. So how does it come about? Next question is, how does it come about? What does it do? It produces a response. How does it come about? Well, it comes about by the mysterious and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. It comes about by the mysterious and the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit and in the occasions and means of God's grace. In verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The main idea, the main point of this metaphor, and here in this metaphor, we've got a trick going on that you can't see. So in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for wind in both languages is the same word as the word for spirit. So you could read this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. You could also read it, the spirit blows where he wishes, and you hear his sound, but you do not know where he comes from or where he goes, right? And Jesus is intentionally leaning into that metaphor, that play on words. He wants you to take the association of wind and give it directly to the spirit. So what's the point of the metaphor? You do not and you cannot control the wind. My son really didn't like the wind when he was born. It frightened him. And he would always want us to stop the wind. I can't. <laughs> I, I, I tried, but it just doesn't work. You do not and you cannot control the wind. But you know and you feel its presence and its effect, right? Consequently, how does the metaphor apply? We, can, we do not and we cannot control the Holy Spirit in bringing about the new birth. You can't command him to do it. You can't, he, he's going to do it or he's not going to do it. It is his business. The new birth is the business of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. But we can discern and rejoice in its presence and its effects. We can see repentance, faith, and a new life of obedience. When you see real repentance, real faith, and a new life of obedience, you know there's only one reason why that is happening. The Holy Spirit. So some people will ask then, well, what's our role? If the Holy Spirit is the one who does it, well, what about me? Friend, God delights to employ occasions and means. These are two words that mean opportunities and tools. The means of a carpenter is his saw and his hammer and his nail and his chisels. Those are the tools that he uses. And the occasion is when he walks into his workshop. <laughs> Let's hear one passage to help us understand that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Do you see the occasion and the means? The means is Paul. He says, I preached it. I came there. I said the words. I preached it. And what's the occasion? When he preached it. Friend, right now you are in the midst of by God's grace, of an occasion and a means of the Holy Spirit. You are hearing the word of God proclaimed to you. This is an occasion. This is an opportunity for you to come to Christ. This is an opportunity for you to grow in Christ. This is an opportunity for you to rejoice in Christ and to love the word of God. This is an occasion right here, right now. And these words are the means. 
the means of the gospel, his word. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 says, Since you have been born again, how? Through the living and abiding word of God. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Thus the new birth, which is God's work, enables conversion. The new birth enables conversion. It is God's work, and conversion is repentance and faith. And that's what we do when God gives us new birth. How do you know the new birth is happening? Go, there's repentance and faith going on. That's the mark of the new birth. So who provides for it? How does it come about? By the mysterious and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Who provides for it? Who made this possible? Jesus. Especially in his cross and resurrection. And we see this in the third metaphor. So our first metaphor was birth. Our second metaphor was the wind. And our third metaphor is a biblical image. In Numbers 21, the people grumble against God. And they're angry that he's brought them out of Egypt. And they speak horrible words. They say they don't like the manna that God has provided for them. They call it this worthless food. And they say, why did you bring us out into this horrible place? And they curse Moses and they curse God. And God sends among them venomous serpents that bite them. And as they're under the affliction, the people, I guess we'll say repent. (laughs) The people repent, right? They turn to Moses and they say, Moses, pray for us so that God will take away these horrible serpents. (laughs) We're sorry. (laughs) And God tells Moses to make a serpent of bronze and to hang it on a stick and hold the stick up over the people. And he says, anybody who looks at the serpent, I'll heal them. But you've got to look. This is the main metaphor that Jesus is relying on. And he's calling on Nicodemus, who would have point blank said, I am not like the Israelites in the desert. They were rebellious. They didn't appreciate what God had done for them. They were the ones that God was angry with. And Jesus says, no, you are like them. So long as you stand on your works righteousness, as long as you stand on your own merit before God, you are just like them. And he calls on us to see ourselves as rebellious Israel that we are suffering the effects of our hard-hearted, stubborn resistance to God in our bodies and in our lives and in the world all around us. We are suffering the effects of our sin under God's wrath, and we need only to look in faith on the one who can deliver us from sorrow and sin and into joy. And a teacher who taught me that when we're working through a parable, you have to locate yourself in the parable. And what Jesus is asking you to do here is to locate yourself in these illustrations. He wants you to locate yourself in Ezekiel 36 and 37. He wants you to say, am I the dead bones? What we find here is the wonderful news that Jesus, when he dies on the cross makes absolute and sufficient atoning sacrifice for the sins of any who would look at him. Friend, right now, if, you're, if your instinct is, I, I want to know Jesus. I, I want to come to him. I want him to help me. The answer is the spirit is at work in you. 
The only reason you would want to come to Christ is because the Spirit is at work in you. The only reason you would want to see Him as good and glorious and as your Savior is because the Spirit is drawing you to Him. Respond to it. Listen to it. Look at Jesus Christ. So the next question is, what must I do about it? If Christ has provided it, and it's a mysterious and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that I don't have control over, what must I do about it? And this is the question that we hear throughout the New Testament, right? What must I do to be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer says. Just tell me. I know I need Christ. What must I do? Well, we have to take this metaphor, as it were, of the metaphor of looking. Looking. The people who looked on the, on the serpent, they would be healed. Well, what does it mean to look on Jesus? It means to repent and to believe in him, to trust in him. I tried to break out what I think looking at Jesus, to see Jesus as your Messiah means. One, it means you need to read God's word. It means you need to reflect on the story of the cross and ask yourself if Jesus is telling the truth. See, in verses 11 through 13, look there, Jesus responds to Nicodemus by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. He's He's responding to the authoritative witness of the, of the Pharisees. So Nicodemus came up saying, we know that you are a... You know, Jesus then says, we know. <laughs> we speak of what we know. And we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not accept our testimony. That's the fundamental basic distinction. Do you believe Jesus? Is he telling the truth? Is his word telling the truth? He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Friend, Jesus is claiming to have exclusive revelation from God. That he is the only one who has ever experienced God at a level where he can definitively tell you, this is who you are, this is what you need, and you need to take it or leave it. At some point, friend... Looking to Jesus means you need to read God's word, reflect on the story of the cross, and ask yourself this question. Is Jesus telling the truth? If the answer to that is yes, then you need to repent of your sin and your righteousness. Some of us have in full view the things that we've done that are openly in opposition to God. We know the sins that we've committed and we, we are hurting over them in our heart. But for others of us, we need to recognize that having righteousness that we trust on for ourselves is just as noxious as presenting sin to God. Our good works are filthy rags in the eyes of God. The one who inherits the kingdom of heaven is the poor in spirit. The one who says, I don't have anything by which I can claim your grace. I just know I need it. So repent of your sin and your righteousness, which is your imagined power to make yourself right with God, and then long for Christ's power. Long for his grace and his love. Long for, the word is palingenesis, new creation. God's promised new creation to break into your life as a foretaste of what is to come. You see, the picture that we have in Ezekiel 37 of this radical resurrection is a picture of what God's going to do in the next kingdom, right? <coughs> and what we experience as individuals is a foretaste of what God promises to do with everything. Go read Revelation 21, 22 today, like, as promise of what that's going to be. And then believe 
believe. Trust Jesus to do what you cannot do to make you right with God and bring you to eternal life. And so follow him. Join his people. Give yourself to following his words and growing in his grace. And that brings us to the last question. How can I know? How can I know? How can I be sure of its presence and its power? You can be sure of the presence and power of the Spirit by the presence, power, and sensation of the saving and transforming effects of God's grace. You don't understand the wind, but you feel its effect. Friend, there are basically two responses to Jesus. At any one moment, you are either moving towards him or you're moving away from him. The wonderful story here is that we don't have all the story about Nicodemus right here. And I'll spoil it for you. <laughs> Nicodemus changes. He comes to Jesus as a religious, moral, upstanding, proud man who felt like he had a place in God's kingdom. And Jesus wrecks his world. By chapter 7, he is beginning to tentatively think that maybe Jesus is something. Because in the Sanhedrin, where they're deciding, we think we should kill this guy, Nicodemus is like, ah, uh, maybe, maybe we should. That doesn't sound like due process. Maybe we shouldn't do that. And by the end of the story, Nicodemus goes to Rome. This is when the disciples are huddled upstairs being like, please, nobody figure out that we are the followers of Jesus Christ because we don't want to die on a cross. And Nicodemus goes and says, I want his body. I'm one of his. That's a treasonous act. Jesus was crucified because he was an imposter pretending to be the emperor of Rome. To align yourself with him is to say, I also am a traitor. He is the king of Rome. Friend, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's long. But you're either moving toward him or you're moving away from him. Peter had doubts. Peter had lots of sin. Peter mistook Jesus' true mission, but Peter truly and genuinely believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So this metaphor tells us that we can discern the effects of God's work in our lives. There's an immediate and a progressive cleansing and an immediate and a progressive confidence. When you are born again, you are set free from your sins, past, present, and future. Not just the ones you did before, not the ones you did this morning, all of them. Jesus atones for all your sin. You are made clean and ready before God. If you were to die that moment, you would enter into his joy immediately. And you would feel, yes, in a moment, some confidence. And over the course of your life, ever-increasing confidence, you will feel more and more confident that Christ has me. I am Christ's. If it were up to me, I would have gotten out of this long ago, but Jesus holds me, and Jesus keeps me, and Jesus will preserve me. And you'll see progressive transformation. You will look at your life, and the longer you've been walking with Christ, the more context you have to point back and be like, I used to be this, but Jesus has made me this. I used to say this kind of stuff. Now I don't, and that's Jesus. I used to behave this way, but now I don't, and that's Jesus. I used to feel this kind of a way, and now I don't, and that's Jesus, you will have new loves. You will start to love things that you thought you could never love. You will love preaching. 
You will love singing. You will love God's people. You will love being in community with Christ. You will love the gathering of the saints. You will have new senses. You're going to start seeing God's work everywhere. You're going to start being like, yeah, the sun rising this morning, that was an act of grace. Us having dinner tonight, that was an act of grace. You know, me having whatever estate I have in life, money, no money, car, no car, family, no family, everything you're going to see is the presence and outworking of God's grace in your life. You're going to have new loyalties. You're going to start thinking of yourself as a Christian far more than an American. You're going to think of yourself as Christian far more than white or black or anything. You're going to see yourself as Christian far more than anything else. You're going to have a new hatred of sin. Things that you used to love doing, you're going to start to hate to do. And you're going to have a new longing for Jesus to come back. You're suddenly going to have this strange feeling like, you know, it would be really awfully nice if Jesus came back today. How about right now? <laughs> and you're going to keep on feeling it, and it's going to get stronger. It's going to get dominating so that that's what you want. You just want Jesus to come back. You're going to want him to appear. And finally, it's going to produce a profound and an enduring humility. Because those that are born again know that it was God and it wasn't them. You're going to know just how much of what you have is all God and not you. You're going to say with John Newton as he goes unto death, I am an old man and I have forgotten many things, but these two things I remember. I am a great sinner, but he is a great savior. Amen. And so I ask you, listener, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. Jesus calls on you to believe on him. Know that we are great sinners, but he's a greater savior. Amen. Let's pray. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin to enter in. Be born in us today. O do come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Amen.